Good morning. Before I pray, I just want to say a, a quick word uh, before we, you know, as we head into this season of Advent. I know some of us, I know personally, and having been with you um, recently, many of you, I know some of us are really feeling the need for a new start, sort of a kind of fresh beginning after a hard season. Many of you have had all kinds of difficulty in recent seasons, and um, maybe you feel like God is far off. Maybe you feel that the story of Jesus is sort of difficult to really cling to right now. Um, and I understand that. I think that, you know, I, I could say that this year, heading into this Advent, there's a real part of me um, that just needs um, what I believe that this season provides. It really can provide for us a way back into our hope and into our joy in Jesus. And honestly, this is why this is part of our common life together. This is why um, seasons and celebrations and festivals and, a, and, and ceremonies and all of these things that the Lord gave to Israel, this is why he gave them to them, is to give them lines of demarcation, to give them opportunities to stop, to reset, to think, to bring the kind of year they had into hopefully a new release and a return to God, because God understands the way the world is. And we feel it, and I feel it. Um, there's nothing about these robes or my ordination or this pulpit that inoculates me from feeling the world, as we say, as it really is. And so I'll, I'll be honest with you, there's, there's a huge part of me that just needs a fresh coming, that needs an advent, that needs to, to relocate myself in what this story is really telling us. You know, this is really why we, the church, we have ordered, as I said, our common life in the way Israel did, in the way God gave to Israel. And so it has the same potential, friends. It has the same power to be an opportunity to begin again. And maybe that's you. So I want you to hear me offering an invitation this morning, but also as we change the colors, as we put the wreath out and the greenery comes and we move toward Christmas, receive it as an invitation to begin again. Whatever that means for you. It means something for me. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are ever new and you are ageless. You are holding all things together even when it feels like all things are coming apart. We thank you that you have planted us and that even though our walls have often been battered, Lord, you will come and restore us. We believe that. But it's hard at times to believe it. So I pray that as we walk together, we begin this journey again with you, Lord Jesus, that our hearts and our minds would be renewed, that you give us fresh wonder, that you give us a fresh uh, strength, uh, strengthening to live in the world, to live in our world and in our circumstances with faith. It has to come from you first. And I pray that above all things, that's what we'll, these folks in this room today will hear and it will resonate in them. Send your light today for us to know your word, to believe it. And let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, of all our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Amen. Merriam-Webster, uh, the dictionary company. Are you familiar with that, the dictionary company, Merriam-Webster? They have just released their annual word of the year. So get excited, all you word nerds. 
the word that this is the word that's most often looked up in words uh, in in searches, internet searches, and this is for 2023. Just just take a few seconds and try to guess what that word might be, the most common one. I mean, right? It's very hard to do, but take a stab at it for a second. Try to guess what it would be. Here's the word of the year: authentic. Anybody guess that? All right. If you said you did, I probably would. I would say you probably need to confess that, that you didn't really, you didn't really know. Also among the top five words, get this, uh, uh, among the top five words were deep fake and dystopian. Authentic, deep fake, and dystopian. People also wanted to know, though, what the word riz means, R-I-Z-Z. I didn't know what it means. I had to ask my teenagers. You can look it up. And then, not surprisingly, coronation made it into the top five because King Charles finally made it to the throne. So, authentic, deep fake, dystopian, riz and coronation. <laughs> These three interest me. It was really interesting to me that authentic was the top word. And here's how the report explained it. I just want to kind of give you how they explained it. They said, a high-volume lookup most years... Authentic saw a substantial increase in 2023, driven by stories and conversations about AI and celebrity culture and identity and social media. Not surprising, right? They went on to say, authentic has a number of meanings, including not false or imitation, a synonym of real and actual, and also true to one's own personality, spirit, or character. Although clearly a desirable quality, they said, authentic is hard to define and subject to debate. Two reasons it sends many people to the dictionary. Authentic is often connected to identity, they say, whether national or personal. So you think of words frequently modified by authentic, including cuisine, but also self and voice. Celebrities like Lainey Wilson, I don't know who that is. Sam Smith, kind of know who that is, and especially Taylor Swift. I have a 16-year-old, so of course I know who that is. They said they all made headlines in 2023 with statements about seeking their authentic voice and authentic self. And lastly, they said, and with the rise of artificial intelligence and its impact on deep fake videos, contracts, academic honesty, and a vast number of other topics, the line between real and fake has become increasingly blurred. Isn't that interesting? I wonder if that's true, though. Has the line become increasingly blurred, or is the always blurry line between real and fake now just more of an obvious and immediate problem for us? What I mean is, as technology and media spill their banks, maybe we just feel more vulnerable to deception and confusion. Maybe as our personal and our communal connections get more and more shallow and diffuse, our sense of what's true and grounded about our own lives feels more fragile and evasive. Arguably, 21st century modern people, they don't know how to know we don't know how to know who we really are, not like we used to. It's more of a question. So we look it up. Our eroding connections, they once allowed us some given sense of our orientation to the world. You know, the family and the farm, a trade and a tradition, our histories and our shared hopes. Or maybe in our hyper-individualized world, we just can't accept these aspects of identity, if they have to do with anything outside of us, 
our own interpretations and our own desires. Everything else is suspicious. Anything outside of what sort of lives between our two ears and right here at the core of us is not authentic enough. More could be said about that, but arguably the modern identity crisis, it doesn't appear to be leading us to any kind of stabilizing update as any good crisis should actually do for us. Instead, it feels, well, dystopian, bearing ever more fruit of anxiety and fear and suspicion and isolation. But here's the thing. These are not, and they cannot be, the final words. No matter how prevailing they become in our society, no matter how many questions we have or how deep those questions run, there is no chance of these being the final words. So, before we dive into a couple of these texts, I want to say two things related to that and related uh, to this first Sunday of Advent. The first one is this. This world is indeed different than it ever was in many ways. And you can receive this as good or bad news, but it's not worse. The world is not worse. In the ancient world, people could build a tall tower to heaven in an attempt to make a name for themselves by trying to cast off their limitations, trying to domesticate God, flexing their collective human power. Here in the 21st century, we're still trying to cast off apparent limitations in the service of individualism. We're trying to be something that we can never be. And it seems that we're willing to erode the very power, and maybe this is the difference, we're willing to erode the very power that made even the Tower of Babel possible, our connection to one another. It's different than any society before us, probably. But my point is this, the stakes are the same, and the story is the same. On the other side of our delusion and the other side of our distance from God is the erosion of peace and the loss of goodness and truth and beauty. As our own striving and anxious gods, if we become those for ourselves, the world is a terribly bitter pill to swallow and an impossible problem to fix, no matter how hard we try. But here's the second thing, and it's the good news. Though the world is different, the answer is the same. The answer to our perennial problem is not different. We need help, and we know where it can be found, and that help is real, and it's sustaining. History has proven it, because here we are, believing, or believing that we should believe, and trying to lean into it, even if that just means being here this morning. And this is the honest, this is the honest and the authentic outcry of Isaiah 64 and the confession of Psalm 80 in our readings today. And I wanted to us to begin with God's ancient people, Israel and Judah for that matter. On this first Sunday of Advent, we get a chance to join Israel and, and Judah whose hearts are just yearning through their prophets and yearning through their poets for something better. For what? For an anchor in the storm that was and is for confidence, even in uncertainty. For a light at the end of what was often a very long and a very dark tunnel through their history. They had hearts yearning to be restored, knowing this is only possible when the Lord finally intervenes. They knew that the answer was the same. So the prophet Isaiah 
who we hear from this morning. He began his ministry when King Uzziah died. Uh, King Uzziah was a relatively strong king over Judah, but the kingdom of Judah had divided from Israel in the late 8th century BC, and it was now, even under a strong king, it was a sad shadow of the glory days under David. Things were economically precarious. They were bullied by the war machines of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And they were weakened internally, spiritually, by injustice among them, which we see over and over decried by the prophets, by God through the prophets. So they're weakened by injustice, very formalistic religion, empty religion, hearts far from God, and um, related to that, syncretism. The mix, right? The timeless temptation to make a salad bar out of their faith out of their identity in God. Syncretism, let's put it this way, it is the spiritual, it is the religious equivalent of putting ill-advised things on the salad bar, like garbanzo beans, and <laughs> tofu, and Thousand Island dressing. And then mixing them all up and eating them, and actually enjoying it. That's what syncretism is. So hopefully you'll remember what syncretism is when I say it the next time. Think that. In Isaiah's day, Judah's kings, they were really just weak vassal kings, right? They were, they were puppet kings. They were, they were basically under the Assyrian overlords. And then about a century after Isaiah, Babylon takes over. They seem to put an end to the line of David altogether. It seems like everything that Isaiah thought was the worst was go- had come to fruition, and yet, before it comes to that place, he is crying out for a Davidic branch from Judah, for the virgin's son, for the suffering servant, and the perfect king to finally arrive and to rescue and to restore. These are his most hopeful prophecies, promising something different, and for them at the time, unthinkable. So Isaiah 64 admits, and this is really, really important, Isaiah 64 admits, without reservation, that the need is great, that the Assyrians, though they weren't really the problem. Sure, you know, they were very domineering and dehumanizing, these empires, they were a symptom of a sin-laden world, just sort of sin and the systems it makes stacked up, standing on the necks of the weak standing on the necks of God's people. But here's what Isaiah says. We've been sinning a long time. He says that beginning in verse 5. He's saying, we know it begins with us. Will we be saved, he asks. We've become like a windblown leaf. We've become like a nasty garment, polluted. And now no one is calling for you, Lord. No one is taking hold of you because you've hidden your face from us. Understandably. You can't look at us. Isaiah says this in verse 7, You have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. There's one ancient Syriac manuscript that puts verse 7 in this way. You have let us go and left us where our sins always take us. And so Isaiah does his foundational job as a prophet. What does he do? He sees the truth. He admits the truth. And he tells the truth, as hard as it is to accept. He separates the real from the fake. 
He defines the authentic problem and the authentic answer, and he cries out for help on Judah's behalf. And the first truth that he admits is that, as I said, that they, that we have let our own sins swallow us whole, and this is where it gets us. This is where it always gets us. And the second truth, though, is that we know where our help lies. At least at that that point, we know where our help lies. In Isaiah's sweeping prophecy, we see a two-stage metamorphosis from pride to humility, leading to repentance and surrender. Israel is the prodigal son brought to the end of himself by his own doing, dragging himself back to the family estate, willing even to become a servant if the father will only let him. So we listen to verse 8. He says, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We're the clay and you're the potter. We are all the work of your hand. In other words, we all know, we see it again, we remember now that you are in control and we are not. This metaphor of pottery and the artisanship of God, his commitment to what he's made, is a constant refrain in Scripture. Paul takes it up. You made us, Isaiah admits. You gave us our shape and our purpose, but we forgot Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, he says, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. We have forgotten. We are the forgetters, but you are the rememberer. Forgetting is what we do. Remembering is what you do, O Lord. Please forget our iniquity and remember us. Turn your eyes to us again. We want to be your people again. We need to become the people of verse 5. Who remember your ways and joyfully pursue righteousness. Who call upon you to rend the heavens to come and shake things up in the earth for our salvation. And though Isaiah couldn't have known then what we know now, he's crying out for Jesus, isn't he? Who would not only be the deliverer, but also the redeemer. The one who can save them from the real problem. From the problem within. The problem of their own sinful hearts. So as we take in these these nine appointed prophetic verses on this first Sunday of Advent, it's verse 3, though, that really stands out most to me. Verse 3. It says, When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. In other words, you worked in ways we weren't looking for. We were looking for something else. We wanted, and we're looking for something else until we were shaken at our foundation. And what's he saying? Please come and do that again. We weren't looking then, we're looking now. It's the cry of Isaiah toward the close of this prophecy. Please come and do that again. That's what we need, and this time we're going to look for it. We are looking for it. We're crying out for it. Our hearts are ready to receive you. We hope they are. And so then Psalm 80, it takes, up a very sim- it takes us into very similar territory. It tells the story of Israel as this chosen vineyard that the Lord brought out of Egypt and planted himself, and he cleared the ground for them in the, uh, and gave them the deepest possible roots in really precarious uh, soil and a harsh environment. But what happened? They flourished as God's provision. They filled the lands. They covered the mountains, he says. But what happens? They lost their purpose. They lost their connection time and again. And now for them, it's just tears. 
Tears for bread. Tears for water. It's just contention. It's embattlement. And the psalmist, he interprets this entropy, this wearing down, this exposure, this loss as God breaking down their walls. There's no protection for the vineyard. Why, he cries out. Why? How did we get here? And it may sound at first as though he thinks this is the fault of their enemies. It's all out there, which, let's be honest, that's what we do. It's their fault. It's their doing. It's their thing. Or he might even be suggesting that it's God's neglect. We got here because you, you turned your face away. You let our walls be broken down. But verse 18 actually gets at the heart of the matter. It says, if you, God, will restore us, then we will not turn back from you. So within that, it's latent that that has happened. They've turned back. But now they need to be restored. We will not turn back from you. If you will give us life again, we will call upon your name. And really, that same heart of the matter in verse 18 is in the chorus of this psalm, this song in verse 3 and then 7 and 19, this refrain, Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. And what do they really mean? This is really important and not obvious. What do they really mean when they sing, restore us? Restore us. It's found in the Hebrew word, shub. Everybody say shub. All right, not a hard one, is it? Here's what that literally, restore us means turn us again. You turn us back. The word can mean do anything to us that will turn us back. Initiate in us. Break, you mean build, circumcise, dig, lay us down, pick us up, send us out, bring us back. And please, once you've turned us, turn again to us. That's what restore us means. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And St. Augustine said something that flows kind of in a similar way. Asking for God's initiative and God's help to be able to be turned. It drove his opponents crazy, by the way, when he said things like this. And Pelagius was one of his opponents. And he was one of these people who wanted to believe that humans have it in themselves to bootstrap it. That they have it in themselves uh, to follow. They have the knowledge to do the law, to perform the law, to turn ourselves back. And to please God. But Augustine saw it differently. And I think the Apostle Paul saw it differently. Augustine's words here that I wanted to share with you, they're actually on my office wall. Oda code ubes et ube code vis domine. Latin. Oh, give what you command and command what you will. In other words, God, give us the wisdom and the strength to do what you command and command whatever you want from us. It has to begin in God. Make it possible. We can't do it ourselves. We can merely cry out for it. Receive it. The Lord has to turn to us for us to be turned. He has to turn us he must come. It must be His mercy and grace, His righteousness and His provision, His craftsmanship and His planting. Our part is to cry out for Him. And that's the place to which He will bring us time and again. He has to shake us up. He has to shake our world to bring us to our knees 
so that we might be lifted up. This is what the Lord has done and will do. In fact, Jesus told his disciples in John 15, and this is really interesting in the way Jesus takes up again the prophetic ministry and takes up the story. He tells his disciples that he is the vine and we are the branches connected to him. The Lord does not ultimately neglect the vine. The Lord becomes the vine. Jesus becomes Israel for Israel to redeem and restore. And then he grafts us outsiders into the vine. God's initiative, God's mercy. In his life and his death and resurrection, Jesus shook our world. He gave us, as John 1 proclaims, the right, and he gave us the power to become sons and daughters of God. He arrived bringing his righteousness, the thing that we absolutely needed but could not do for ourselves. He arrived to give this to us, his power through his spirit to be and to do what he commands, what he desires for the world he loves. It begins in God. It begins in the God who comes to us, which is unthinkable. But it's true. Friends, it just comes down to this. Maybe you don't think, about yourself, uh, think of yourself this way. You don't think of the church this way. But we are the prophets and the poets called to stay awake in Jesus' words. Vigilant in our honesty about what's really going on in the world and in us. We need God to come and to keep coming. We need to keep an eye on the blurring lines between what's trustworthy and false, authentic and contrived. To know that the answer to our ever-present problems is the reality that Jesus came for us and is coming for us, just as he promised. This is the hope, and hopefully the initiative of God that you begin to feel in this season. Like Isaiah, like the psalmist, we are living in our own in-between time. We kind of always are, brothers and sisters. This is what God has given to us to do, personally and together as the church. This is our calling, to stay awake. Put ourselves in constant connection with the light by which we can really see, knowing it is the Lord who is turning us and turning his face to us, knowing that he has turned, that he is turning, and he will turn. Do you believe it? Lord, turn us to believe it. Help us to believe it all the more. Show us what's true. Lord Jesus, pull back the veil at so many times in our lives when all we can see is what's wrong, what's heavy, what's hard. Lord Jesus, you are the one who turns our hearts. You came. And we pray together as we enter this season that you would keep turning us, that this would be a powerful turning season for us toward Christmas, a powerful season in the life of Village Church. We pray all these things in your name and for your glory. Amen.